Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week we discuss the rise in knife crime. I talk to Anne Washburn, the playwright, about dysfunctional America. And you ask us, what would Chris Grayling have to do to get the push? Stephen, let's talk about knife crime. Okie dokie. Which has been, as a story, kind of just bubbling away. And now, as I as previously mentioned on, on former podcasts, I tried to look at Twitter less. And it, I tell you what, it's like the Elysian fails out. You know, people have like full length conversations in the real world. But get me up to speed with the story, because I know Sadia Javid is involved. I know Theresa May's record as Home Secretary is under question. But beyond that, I'm going to be honest, it's very broad brushstrokes. So essentially, because of the increase in knife crime, which kind of, I mean, culminated, feels like the wrong word, but there have been a kind of um, a series of crimes that, for a variety of reasons, in one case because the perpetrator was a woman, you know, a girl, in some cases, in one case because the perpetrator was not in a gang, basically I think all of the things that people kind of semi-tell themselves to make themselves feel better about it did not really apply. Okay, so that's that. Uh, I thought that was an interesting facet of the conversation, and it seemed to be like... We all know that gangs have problems and gangs kill each other and therefore that is a problem that we can kind of go, oh, how terrible, but it's not affecting, quote-unquote, normal people, right? And yeah. Whereas that doesn't seem to be the way that it's being framed now and therefore it seems to have jumped up the political agenda. Yeah, and, you know, and yeah, so obviously, you know, crime has been rising in salience in the polls. We've been talking about it more. But, yeah, I think what's happened is, is through a series of high-profile stabbings, yeah, so of the three which have had a lot of coverage this week, only one was of someone in a gang. And I'm obviously not of the opinion that, oh, well, people in gangs stab themselves. But that is clearly something which people do partly for understandable reasons. If you've got children, I imagine that is something you tell yourselves partly to, to, to feel reassured. It does, of course, immediately put Theresa May's record in the spotlight because, you know, the, the narrative about her, you know, spread both by her allies and by a large chunk of the press was this idea that she had stood up to the police federation over police cuts and had successfully, as it were, implemented budget cuts without, yeah, an increase in crime. But that she had also, from a liberal point of view, done a praiseworthy thing by saying to them that stop and search was causing huge disgruntlement among particularly black communities in London, that it was, you know, unfair in racial terms to, to profile people like that. And that was the kind of thing that was welcomed. And that's now all seems to be kind of back on the table. My problem with this issue is that I think 
there is some very simplistic reasoning on, on both sides and I think more on the conservative side but there is this sort of assumption that police like she got mocked for saying that there was no correlation between police numbers and crime and then people went well of course you know if that's true why would we have police at all but what do you mean by police numbers there do you mean the work that's done in prevention do you mean the work that's done in community building or do you mean quote-unquote bobbies on the beat right and actually all the evidence shows that you can have people randomly patrolling in places and that does really nothing because the chance of them happening upon a crime are kind of extremely small so and I think you know youth services are um, uh, to me seem like a much bigger part of dealing with inner city gang crime right yeah I think this definitely is a story of and we see this sort of played out across the public realm this kind of like oh we've cut things and it's fine oh we've cut things and it's fine oh there are loads of rough people sleeping rough oh schools are having to close early oh because it's also it's not just a UK story of falling crime rates right the story throughout the Western world is of falling rates of, of all crime, uh, some migration of... Actually, even when you factor in the, the migration of, cri- of you know, new crime crimes online, online yeah. there is still actually an overall fall in crime, right? That's what caused that slight weird upward tick isn't a bunch of cybercrime which hadn't been counted was but if you sort of pivot back and go okay well let's count all of those offenses of crimes you still have a a long-term thing which has been now okay yes we're still some way off from like 70s levels of crime but it it does appear to have been thrown into a minor reverse which yeah is primarily I, i think fair to say about cuts across the kind of wider piece of crime prevention you know not just as yeah obviously as you say you know, youth services community building but also and obviously our prisons have always been quite rubbish on rehabilitation that is you know one of the very positive things david gork is doing is trying to get rid of shorter term sentences but because there's less money going into prisons they of course become even more effective universities of crime right so, so i was looking into um, chris grayling's record in, in probation services right which was cr- criticized by the national audit office this week and although reoffending rates have fallen 2011 to 2018 by 2.5%, like the number of offenders, the number of offences per offender has risen by 22%. So the people who are getting caught again have committed far more crimes after they do it. And because he wanted probation for people who were sentences under 12 months, short sentences, recalls to prison have increased by 47%. So you do have this incredibly dysfunctional bit of the, the justice system that is just cycling people round and round and round with no way out. And actually, um, Akela was on Channel 4 News, gave a great, great interview talking about the overrepresentation of people in care in the prison system for example so that clearly has been a breakdown all the way along in terms of people who end up in prison for violent violent crimes and actually fixing that is probably going to be a lot more difficult than anybody wants to admit yeah i mean this is the odd thing right instant well it's not odd it actually makes complete sense when you think about it you know even if you use a kind of hated household analogy right it's much more expensive to repair your boiler than it is to service your boiler service your boiler <laughs> right. and much more expensive to pay your boiler up front than it is to pay the insurance jobby thing and all public spending crises are like that right it you know it, it's not simply just a matter now of going okay, well, we'll just undo all of the cuts to rough sleeping strategies. Uh, it's like, all oh, right, so we're going to start with a rough sleeping crisis, which means and it takes longer to... And it is, of course, the same with crime. But there is, of course, the added kind of... I mean, there are so many things making us a less well-governed country. But one of them, of course, is the fact that everyone expects there to be a Conservative leadership election, which means you have Boris Johnson going bring back stop and search right and then you have Sadia Javid going the thing is that you know people are afraid to talk about race in this debate and because I'm from a BME community I'm not and therefore I'm going to say the kind of things that a boilerplate conservative candidate says but make the conservatives feel okay about someone saying them right 
Yeah, essentially. Now, I think the interesting thing... So, I mean, from the stop-and-search perspective, right, there have been two attempts in the 21st century to curb stop-and-search. When David Blunkett did it in 2000, 2001, when he first became Home Secretary, they basically went, look, just knock this off, you know, stop it. And the overall number of stop-and-searches reduced, but the racial disparity did not, right? They basically, if, if you imagine that before you had a problem of police forces searching, you know, five people two of whom needed to be searched one of whom looked like the two yeah actually looked like the two people from a kind of intelligence led policing and then the other two were searches they shouldn't have done Mm. for for racial or other profiling reasons what they effectively just did was they basically went okay well we'll only do two searches of those five one of which would be someone who Mm. uh, needed to be searched one of which would be someone being searched for profiling reasons it was not effective and there was a pretty immediate and related increase in crime what Theresa May did and it is actually I think one of the few bits of policy making where you can go actually this worked well it did not have consequences that were politically painful is to reduce the illegal number of stop and searches the number of arrests so stop and search has perversely become a more a more effective police tool because you're much more likely it is now more likely to lead to arrests in absolute terms there are a higher proportion of searches lead to arrests and of course fewer people who are searched are being searched on wholly illegitimate grounds now of course it is in theory possible that that could still contribute to a rise in crime if some of the young people being stabbed, people, young people who are reading about crime, knew that they were being bullied by a gang, started carrying a knife out of some misguided idea of their own protection, and then either stabbed someone in self-defence or had their own knives uh, used, against, used them. against them. That's really difficult to disaggregate at this point because we don't know and there are court cases going. So, of course, it may turn out that that is part of the story of increased knife crime. However, that has not been the case in any of the... You know, the stabbings of which have been completed to completion, as it were, where someone's been tried, convicted, etc., etc. So we are very much at a stage where, if you think that the changes she made, of course, we are in the extraordinary claim requiring extraordinary proof category, whereas the argument that it's about the consequence of the cuts, I mean, it's like, well, look at the rest of the public realm. Yeah, I think that's very odd, isn't it? Is that one? I find it sort of saddening that one of the few things that Theresa May has done that I think was a, a good and brave thing to do in her career, an unequivocal, is now kind of being used against her by people who want to become the next Tory leader. So that's that's miserable. But well, let's find something more cheery than Brexit or, or crime to talk about next week. Maybe like puppies. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm joined by Anne Washburn, the playwright behind The Twilight Zone at the Ambassadors Theatre in the West End until the 1st of June and Shipwreck at the Almeida Theatre until the 30th of March. Anne, I'm very pleased to have you here because you're doing what I officially know as the the James Graham double. Two plays on at the same time in London. It's a big achievement. Um, And they're both about a kind of American weirdness in different ways. Is that a coincidence or is that something that you keep returning to? You find it's an interesting thing to write about at the moment. I think both of those plays kind of came out of the same moment in a way. The Twilight Zone was a project the Almeida came to me about in 14. They had brought on Richard Jones and Richard Jones had suggested me. But I didn't really start writing, writing, working on it till the, you know, 
15 and 16, and of course, events were really sort of starting to percolate in the States. And I started Shipwreck in a big gust in the summer of 17, in sort of a week, when I'd already done a ton of work on the Twilight Zone right after that first, I was in a silent retreat, right after that first gust of work on it. I literally went from this silent retreat in the sort of the Northern California coast, drove to uh, the San Francisco airport and and flew to London to do two weeks worth of work on the Twilight Zone. So they they kind of did come from the same place in very different ways, or they've both been very different lenses of looking at the same series of events. It's how it's felt. They've been different deep dives. Right. One of my favorite cartoons is an XKCD cartoon about sightings of the Loch Ness Monster and people having smartphones. And as soon as people get smartphones, strangely enough, sightings of the Loch Ness Monster completely fall off because people would go, and where's your photo of the Loch Ness Monster? And when I was watching The Twilight Zone, I wondered that about, you know, this America that was full of UFO sightings and and Mm. myths and, you know, boys with bat ears and all that kind of national and quite a weekly world news kind of weirdness. That that stuff kind of is, is much harder to support now. And is there a kind of sense that America's kind of weird conspiracy theories have, have moved into a more unpleasant political space? Because there's not an outlet for them in just things that are just frankly kind of insane. That is a really interesting question. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's been interesting. A lot of where Shipwreck came from was spending a lot of time looking at looking at right-wing websites and looking at really intensive conspiracy theories and really tracking the degree to which people who by all accounts I'm sure are not idiots really would believe quite crazy things and 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 really yes are longing to believe very long elaborate hidden dark secrets we really want to go there so yeah that is interesting have we denied ourselves have we denied ourselves kind of more harmless myths right, and then yielded to yeah bad trickier ones and yeah like you say anti-vax myths things like that that are just a kind of an outlet for the fact that we still there are things that happen that we can't explain and yeah. and there will always be kind of an appetite for that i just wonder there was an interview with a guy who runs the flat earth society and he and he said well of course we don't you know people don't literally think that the earth is flat it's just a comforting thing to think because if the earth's flat then we're at the center of the universe we're not just one pinprick among a million stars and that's what flat eartherism gives to people and you're like oh okay and i just wonder how much with the stuff in the twilight zone it's a kind of an enjoyable thing to you know to relax into the kind of idea of there being aliens because in a way it would be nice not to be alone in the universe oh i think having a i think having a clear villain or a clear source of difficulty is helpful and soothing and one of the ways in which our situation is slightly easier i think than brexit yeah, okay. Do you know what I mean? We have a we have a very clear face of something. There's and one I, guy and he's the thing there, that's wrong. There's one guy, yes. Whereas I think you guys are dealing with, it seems like you're dealing with a, a trickier, more moving series of... Is that true though? Because even if you take Trump out of the equation, you know, the, the Republican Party is riddled with kind of dark money. There was a piece in New Yorker this week about how Fox News has effectively become a, you know, a state broadcaster now for the, yeah, yeah. For the Trump administration. Sometimes I think, is it really relaxing again to just think that Trump is the problem and there's not a systemic... Oh, of course there's a systemic thing, but there's always a systemic thing. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's no utterly clean, happy set of, you know, nation. There's no, there's no group of people that can't be whipped into some kind of ferment. And I'm sure there's... I don't look in that area too often, but I'm sure there's all kinds of dark, sinister something in the Democratic Party and in the independent parties. I mean, right now we're just focused on the Republicans and and yes, things certainly look implicative and dark to me. The bit that I really most loved in The Twilight Zone is there's a sequence of, you know, the three-minute warning, whatever it is, kind of goes off that there's going to be a nuclear strike. And then there is a big argument between families about who gets a place in the, mm-hmm. the nuclear bunker. 
And what I loved about that is suddenly there's all the subtext is made text and people actually really say what they think. There's a line, I think, where someone says, you know, I, the white family says to the black family, you know, my, my ancestors chose to come here. Mm-hmm. And it's something that they would never say in, in normal situations, but suddenly it's all out in the surface. And I wonder if, if Trump is kind of a manifestation of that in that there is, again, something where finally people said out loud all the things that have been simmering and festering in America for a really long time. He's kind of a boil bursting. I, I think so. I mean, I think there's only so long people can handle. I mean, there is always a remove. I mean, in any given situation with any given person, there is a remove from what you are really thinking and what you are saying. And when in generally healthily, we generally we think that's healthy. Do you know what I mean? We can't all be saying everything we think. It would be crazy making. But I think there's only so long a society can tolerate a tension between everything which is being felt and, and not said. And I think, I mean, I think the Twilight Zone very much came from post-war America. You know, a large section of the male population and some of the female population had gone to war and had experiences and came back and there was no place in that society to talk about it. Everyone clamped down. And I think where the Twilight Zone really comes from is... is people beginning to push against that sense of what was clamped and what was not said and, and, and the stories and the pain that weren't being expressed, which I think sort of busts out later on in the 60s, you know, where the younger generation can kind of like... Take once, drugs. Can take drugs, but it's like trying to sort of grapple with what they felt was a very fundamental hypocrisy between what was being expressed and what wasn't being expressed without knowing what it was. That's tangled. Just to say, I think that, think you can really see evidence of the Twilight Zone series comes from real compression and real lack of articulation in American society. And I think, and yes, those stories that are, are easy ways of expressing psychological monsters or, or that give us a kind of relief to involve ourselves in them. And I think that, yes, now we are having, we are having another sort of explosive discussion of all of the things we haven't said. Right. Was it, yeah, that's what I think the interesting question is about any kind of revival or adaptation is that's what it did for its original audience. Is it doing the same thing for a new generation who haven't had that or is it doing something new? I'm sure it's doing something new. I mean, it is still appealing. I mean, monsters and scary things are still appealing. They're appealing in a different way. I mean, the Twilight Zone means something different to us now, obviously, than it did then. And there are other things right now which will have the same power that the Twilight Zone had then, but it's as far as a deep dive, deep targeted dive into the American psychology, I think the Twilight Zone still has a great deal of validity. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was just quickly, it was about shipwrecks. So that's a play, the spine of which is, you know, a group of guilty, mostly white liberals in a farmhouse in upstate New York, obsessing about Trump. Like mm-hmm. really, and that's one of the things I found was really uncomfortable to watch. I was like, I'm pretty sure I've literally had these these actual conversations. Oh, I... And interspersed with the story of a black young man who was adopted from Kenya by a white family who then ends up voting for, for Trump and trying to unpick that what that means now you said at the time you wanted to find out whether or not it was possible to write a history play about the present Mm -hmm. what conclusion did you come to at the end of that process (laughs) i leave that for the audience to determine but was it harder than you thought or easier than you thought or in what ways was it different from how you thought it would be i think a, a question that someone poses in the play is how can you write anything about the present moment isn't the whole point of art you know, time and space and, and distance and reflection. And you can't reflect on the current moment. It's too white hot in your heart. I don't know that the play that is being produced is not the play that I wrote in that first gust of a week. Mm. How many drafts did it go through? It's always really hard to say. I mean, I feel like someone made a really great point, which is that the computer has made it really hard to, the drafting process has made it completely different. Yeah. So you don't really get to the end of something and then start afresh this 
draft concept is really an old one that belongs to typewriters. So I couldn't tell you. Like, it's been sort of under continuous expansion and attack. It went under continuous, continuous expansion and attack for about a year, a little bit less than a year, and then obviously continues to be reworked. I guess I would say that, yes, I ended up feeling that it was possible to attain some degree of distance and some degree of perspective to a degree which is can be meaningful right now. I do feel like, you know, this is a play which is very much of the present moment. I would be extraordinarily surprised if it felt at all valid five years from now or three years from now. Making it was also a gesture of, I'm going to make something really impermanent that I hope has a kind of mental utility right now, but I'm going to give up any sort of larger sense of... Yeah. usefulness. No, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. The other thing I thought was really interesting about both The Twilight Zone and Shipwreck is that they were produced in Britain. And I wondered if there's a sense of kind of British schadenfreude about watching plays about American breakdown. <laughs> where we're like, huh, see, you'd have been happy if we stuck with us. And I do think it's really true. Like, I remember I got quite a lot of commissions from, like, I was commissioned to do an op-ed piece by the New York Times after Trump got elected about how, you know, Brexit was really the warning that actually you had you could be incredibly complacent about the kind of triumph of liberal democracy and, and these populist uprisings were coming. And I think there was a kind of, yeah, I think at that point, maybe the kind of American intellectual class saw Britain as a warning. And now there's a kind of thing where, I think because you know Britain follows American politics, British political class certainly follow American politics like a kind of weird extra sport that we're interested in, right? Because mm-hmm. people just watch The West Wing and therefore they're like, oh, I think I understand the American system. Was it coincidence that Lieber ended up doing both of these productions in in Britain, or was there any idea about it was more interesting to do them outside America? No, they, those that actually, actually, if I can say something dark about Brexit, yeah, I, I have to say like, and this is dark, and I'm sorry because it is your nation. There was a small part of me when Brexit happened, which was because it already looked like we might be going in a crazy direction. Uh There was a small part of me which said, well, at least my British friends won't be able to hold their political system over me if we go this way. And there has been something. Oh, no, I remember when George Bush got elected the first time, people were posting. I mean, it might even... Maybe it was when he got re-elected because then things had existed. People sort of forwarding emails around like about how, you know, we'd revoke the Declaration of Independence. Like, ha, ha, ha. We, you know, you guys have proved that you can't be trusted to govern yourselves. And these very, like, <laughs> smug British kind of things. And, yeah, and now there is no, we can have no smugness about Donald Trump. There is something, there is something comforting, Water. yes, yeah. in that, I'm afraid, as an American. Okay, well, we can, yeah, we're both... N- nor both can we lord Brexit over you. No. So we're both screwed. What a nice note to end the interview on. Thank you, Anne mm. Washburn. At Twilight Zone is at the Ambassador's Theatre in the West End until 1st of June. And now for a section we like to call... We like to call... You Ask Us. Yes full of enthusiasm the you ask us this week is what would chris grayling have to do in order to get sacked so for anyone who is like me a great fan of the career of chris grayling he did a double last week where he was criticized both by the national audit office for his probation reforms in 2014 which the um, carving the probation system in two high-risk offenders stayed with the public sector medium and low-risk cases went out to community rehabilitation trusts the, the private sector which was probably i think intended to make the private sector look really good because it gave in the kind of easy straightforward cases to deal except it turned out far more of them were medium risk than low risk they couldn't make any money on the contracts they're having to end several of them early at a cost of several million pounds and it was also a bit like universal credit faith-based policy making where there were internal reports from the ministry of justice at the time going 
ooh, this is probably going to lead to poor, quite poor outcomes, actually, and they steamed on regardless. And on the same day, the government had to pay out £33 million to Eurotunnel, who said, hang on a minute, you didn't have a proper tender process for no-deal ferry services. You ended up awarding contracts to three companies, one of whom didn't have any ferries and never run any ferries. The backer then, after all this controversy, pulled out. And yet here we are, like, what are we, chop liver? We transport stuff across the channel all the time. So I reckoned in a single day... Chris Grayling had cost the government, uh, cost the taxpayer, two hundred million pounds. Yeah, I mean, so have you ever had a bad day at the office like that, Stephen? Not yet, I hope. <laughs> so Labour did a very sort of kind of very good old-fashioned bit of policy-based mm. attack where they totted up the total sum he'd cost throughout his career, which was something like... It was like, like 33 billion. Yeah. I mean, it was really um, impressive. Yeah, it was a, a nice bit of work by whoever in their research team did it. I mean, I think the weird thing is, I kind of think the question of what does Chris Grayling need to do to be sacked is for Theresa May to stop being... His protector. Prime Minister, right? Mm. I mean, so the, the thing he is really good at is he has managed to, at various points in the political life of the Conservative Party, successfully identify ways to become politically valuable... Even while being administratively... Extremely sinkable. Yeah. With Cameron, that was partly because of Cameron's reluctance to reshuffle, but also the extreme difficulty of finding someone right-ish as in, in terms of his position within the Conservative Party, I'm not saying that he was, you know, the correct. man has never been even correct adjacent, right? The, <laughs> the guy probably had to get a Eurotunnel to reach being correct, but who was not someone who the Lib Dems would have gone, no, no, never. Yeah, we are not having this guy in, in this... Uh, and I think that is the real lesson of Chris Grayling, is that if you're going to be bad, be boring. Boris Johnson coming out making comments about pickaninnies and Nazis and all of that stuff. It's just like a big, tar- a big interesting target. And the ways in which Chris Grayling has failed are about transport policy, about prisons policy. You know, it's just quite, those are quite crunchy stories. To, like, I think you know, you're right. Labour did a route that, that attack was good and totting it all up and saying, here's the bill you're paying because of Chris Grayling is a good way of doing it. But it's just, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing and you have to explain what Chris Grayling has done wrong because he doesn't say anything particularly interesting. His interviews are like chloroform tastic so yeah I, that's what my answer is so your answer is that he'd have to be not valuable to Theresa may yeah uh, and my answer is that he'd have to be interesting there we go come on chris grayling you owe it to us you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me helen lewis and stephen bush we're recorded by india bork produced by nick hilton and our theme music is devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons Why not subscribe to Stephen's free morning email? Subscribers to the print edition also get a free week ahead written by him and Patrick Maguire. It is quite literally everything you need to know on a Sunday morning that isn't where the nearest bottle of ketchup and a full English breakfast is. (laughs) 